Hi, and welcome to Coach's Connection by Mitchell Moore. Today we have a special guest, my college coach, Steve Weir. Steve is the director of men's and women's golf at Cleveland State University and has guided the programs to 10 Horizon League championships in his coaching stint. Steve has impacted my life significantly and gave me my first coaching job last year. I've been lucky enough to learn from him for the last 10 years and can't wait for you guys to learn from him too. Sit back, take notes, and listen to one of the best coaches in the country. Doing well, Mitchell. How are you? Hey, I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. I'm excited to uh, have my old college coach on here and uh, the person that gave me my start in my coaching career as well. So I'm excited for everyone to learn from you. Um, I've gotten to my entire life, so or I guess the last eight years. So I'm pretty excited for this one. Well, I appreciate you having me on. I guess I helped start your coaching career. So if I don't end your podcasting career. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. How's uh, everything going? The three kids at home, uh, not doing school. I mean, not uh, at school right now. Um, your mom's a teacher. Um, we were kind of talking about um, she's kind of excited to uh, have them at home school. And um, can you uh, explain what you guys are doing as far as that goes? Yeah, see, we've uh, my parents live two miles up the road and we have been quarantined with them essentially for the last three weeks. Their house is essentially our kids second home is house I grew up in and um so it's my parents and the five of us between my wife Alicia the three kids and myself so we've um they go up there and do their their school work during the week there's mom mom and dad both taught for 33 or 34 years so it's it's helped having having her and I think it helps her having the kids over there a little bit and, and nobody else goes over there we don't see anybody else so it's yeah, it's the seven of us and um, gives the kids a little bit of a break and um, they've got a big backyard where there's nobody else around so kids get to play and get outside, get some fresh air. Um, kids are adjusting as well as you can for, you know, four, six and an eight year old having the routines completely flipped upside down. Um, we've worked in some FaceTime phone calls for my, my daughters and her friends so she can see them. Their schools are doing some Zoom meetings with a bunch of eight year olds. It's kind of funny. Um, but they're able to see their friends a little bit, see their teachers. Um, they're they're doing as well as they can. They they know enough that there's some sick bugs, as we call it, going around that they've got to be smart, watch all the germs. Um, the youngest, being four, doesn't understand a whole lot other than that his brother and sister are home every day now, <laughs> and mom and dad aren't going to work. And I think he's uh, he's loving it, and it's going to be a probably a bigger adjustment for him once everything gets back to whatever normal is going to be. Um, not to have everybody around as much anymore, but it's uh, it's been a challenge. But I think we've, after God, what, three and a half, four weeks into this, I think we've started to settle into a decent routine, uh, develop new routines for them and try to keep them um, shielded as much away from the things that they don't need to know as, as we can. Yeah, and uh, you uh, were talking to me about the uh... – like you guys put themes together at night. I think it's a good idea. You mind going into that? Some of our the coaches that listen have kids. I think this is a great idea. Yeah, see, we are, um, I think if you use the word Disney fanatic, it's probably an understatement for us. Um, we've been going to Disney parks for quite a while now. My kids have grown up going to Disney parks when we have the opportunity. Uh, we started with Disney Cruise Line two or three years ago, and uh, my kids went on their first cruise uh, a couple months ago, actually, back in January. Alicia and I had had been on one or two and thought they would enjoy it, so we took them and my parents, and um, they've got different theme nights that they run on the cruise, and the kids seem to have a, a lot of fun with it, so Alicia and I were kicking around some ideas to 
break up the monotony of, of quarantine and um, isolation. And so we did a, a formal night, which we all got dressed up and um, had a bit of a fancier dinner, or as fancy as you can have with a four, six and eight year old. Um, and then we did a, a night where we virtually took them to the parks and Alicia kind of decorated the living room in different themes with the four Disney parks and the cruise line and um, kind of made some Disney themed meals and made some pizzas in the shapes of Mickey Mouse and just different ways. And then um, it's it's given them something to look forward to through the, that day of the theme that we were going to have. We think we're going to do a pirate night this week they do that on, on the ship one night and but the let the boys dress up as pirates and carry their swords around the house all day and so just things to i'm sure they won't beat each other up with those swords either no i've only had to take them away about 424 times over the past three weeks <laughs> they've been on top of the refrigerator hidden in cabinets and of course they seem to find them wherever we put them uh, but it's it's good and it keeps them our main goal when we came out of this or when we come out of this whatever it's going to be is that the kids look back on this as something that they enjoyed not something that they had to do. Like they were at home more with mom and dad. Mom and dad weren't going to work. Uh, Daddy wasn't traveling this time of year, which usually I always am. And that they look back at it and realize that they actually had fun with it. And not that they ever hoped that something like this happens again. But if if we are in a situation like this again, that they they don't dread it. That they look at it like they get to spend more time with us, and um, we are less distracted because we're not getting text messages or phone calls from work and things we have to take care of. My wife is a uh, general manager of a um, quite busy retail store. So she's, even if she's at home, she's getting calls from the store. So it's been nice to not have to have our cell phones on all the time. Cause there's just not the calls and texts coming in. So the kids have, kids have enjoyed having mommy and daddy, um, you know, devoted our full attention 24 hours a day to them, which is, has yeah. been nice for us as well. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, uh, getting into uh, what you guys are doing at Cleveland state, um, your e-learning going online and, um, how are you guys dealing with the, the, learning aspect and um, meeting team meetings and things like that. Yeah. See the virtual learning, which is what we've been pretty engaged on the last, I guess the last two weeks has pretty much been our full focus. I'll give Cleveland state and president Sands and the whole leadership team, a lot of credit. They started a, a task force or committee January 26th. Um, we are very strong partners with the Cleveland clinic and the clinic kind of our, our doctors that are on campus every day, through athletics and other departments kind of gave us a heads up that something we might want to pay attention to pretty early on. So they started coming up with contingency plans. If we ever get to a worst case scenario that we need to shut down what we can do. Um, so once we went into the worst case scenario and shut down was in the middle of our spring break. And within about 48 hours, they had plans set up um, across campus with all the faculty and staff and professors um, to kind of engage their, uh, their e-learning or virtual learning, however you want to call it. Um, so they gave us an extra week of spring break so that everybody could get their system set up so it was as smooth of a transition as possible. Um, yeah. Strickland Athletics, our academic advisors, want to work quite hard um, at making sure that all of our student athletes had access to computers and Internet. Um, our international students that had to travel home um, needed to make sure that they had setups for themselves and um, so branched out from the advisors to uh, the head coaches. We met with them you know, via Zoom a couple times that week to make sure that we knew what we were going to tell our players to be prepared for. Um, once we got started, um, whatever that Monday was, the 23rd, I believe, and it turned into um, the first couple of days, the, our players had to get, also get used to, but figure out how their professors were really going to use virtual learning. Mm -hmm. um, and some professors were pretty proficient right away with it. They knew what they wanted to do. 
And it took other professors a couple days uh, to figure out the best way for them to go about using this, um, whether it was taped lectures or putting them on Zoom for live. And then if they were, how could they save them so kids could go back and watch them? Yeah. What happened for us was a couple professors thought they were doing everybody a favor and they moved their classes to all like 10 or 11 o'clock. Well, we had a couple kids who had multiple classes being taught at the same time. Um, so that was a bit of a hiccup the first week. Yeah. So it's just been standard communication. Um, you know, I harped on our kids right away that communication has to stay up between not only you know, myself and them, but them and their, and their professors. Let them know you're engaged. Let them know that you're trying. Um, and I think once we come out of this, everybody's going to be hopefully pretty understanding that as long as you're putting in the effort, um, that everybody knows we're, this is this is new for everybody. Um, so we've got some players that are very strong with online classes and they love them. We have other players that can't stand them and they're not very good at them. So those are the ones we've had to really help adjust to watching a taped lecture and how to take notes the right way when you're taking them on a, on a screen and you can't ask a question necessarily right away. Um, so it's been an adjustment and that's, you know, I think it's the, the name of what we do is trying to figure out a way to get 14 or 15 student athletes to um, how they learn differently and how we can you know bring them all together. And I, th I think it's gone pretty well. Um, we had a few hiccups the first week and a half or two weeks with kids just I don't say mo being motivated, but when you give a 19 or 20 year old all the time in the world yeah. to get something done, they always tend to wait till the last minute. So we've had to um, work with a few of them, give them a little more instruction, you know, how to get stuff done the right way the first time. And um, it's not been as smooth as I think um, people would want, but I think it's probably been as smooth as you could expect with everything that's been going on and the uncertainty and um also frankly real world realizing that you know nothing is as important as kind of what's going on and trying to keep them like i said motivated and, and going forward team meeting wise we've set up a few zoom team meetings we're bringing everybody together um first couple were a little awkward guys and they're really not knowing what to to say or do <laughs> um and once i i jumped off um at the at the end it'll give them a chance to kind of get back together and, and see each other and, and talk. And I talked to a couple of guys later that night and they said that was actually good and kind of reassuring to uh, get back into the, you know, the team camaraderie and giving each other a hard time and talking to each other. And I know a few of them have ended up FaceTiming a bit more since then, because I think at first they really weren't sure that they needed it. Now I think they realized that, you know, seeing each other and talking to each other and, and getting back together, even if it's virtual is, is going to be good for them. Yeah. And it's been great to see, what colleges have done uh, with the virtual learning. Pretty impressive what everybody's done and with two weeks notice um, for you guys is good with the Cleveland Clinic to be all uh, right there. And people don't know it's like the number three ranked hospital in the world and doing a ton of stuff with the coronavirus. So um, it's been fun to uh, kind of see what every college has done um, with that. And you talked about communication is important and I know it's important to, uh, to you in general. Um, and the first question I ask every uh, coach is what are the foundations you built your program on? Um, and you took over at 24 years old, the head men's and women's golf coach at uh, Cleveland State. Um, what are the foundations you built your program on? I'd say early on, um, I, as you said, I was kind of a Cleveland State lifer. I graduated from, from Cleveland State and saw a golf program go through a bit of transition between the time I graduated and the time I took over, which was only a year. But there was a, a little bit of familyness, I guess is the word I want to use, lost in that year. So the first first team meeting i'll never forget it um brought two teams together men and women um, one room and they were acquaintances at the time and i 
simply told them, I said, we've got one program that'll happen to have two teams. Um, but you guys are one program. You're going to get along. We're going to um, practice together when we can. We didn't, will not travel together very often. Um, but same token, you guys need to be here for one another. Don't look at your, at just your team. You've got teammates on the other side of the aisle that are going to be able to help you. And so the first couple months was a bit of a transition for them. Um, you know, the guys, you know, had to uh, realize that they would be able to help the ladies out when they needed it and vice versa. The ladies could help the guys out when they needed it. And it didn't take very long for them to realize that they were a lot more similar than they thought. And it kind of turned into a family. Um, and at that point, Alicia and I were, we got married the September of my first year coaching. So I think I was about eight weeks on the job when we had our wedding and, um, what kind of showed me what Cleveland state was all about at that point. Um, the leadership team told me during my interview that if I got the job, um, that I would have to go on my honeymoon. And I said, no, we would go ahead and push that back until after the fall season was over. And at that point they told me if I got the job and I pass on the honeymoon, they would take the job away from me. That um, my wife would be mad enough as we went through as much traveling as I was going to do. They would handle running the team for a week. Um, so right there kind of showed me how important family was to them. So we got married, went on our honeymoon in the middle of our fall season. And that's kind of what led me to the, the notion that we need to make this all about family. And, and we did um, at that point, again, we didn't have any kids. Um, so they were, you know, they were my children. They were how we kind of looked at it. And um, so went about just trying to get everybody to realize that uh, golf was an avenue for them that they could, you know, use later on in their lives if they did things the right way. And so it was all about um, just kind of building team chemistry. Um, in my opinion, the results were going to come if we could do everything else the right way. And uh, the guys were fortunate enough to win our, that first year, um, we won our Heisman Championship and um, kind of set things in motion that have kind of carried on for the last 13 or 14 years. Yeah, and you uh, you talked about not having kids there uh, then, and you talk about a family atmosphere, and um, you had kids my freshman year, uh, Kinsley came, your first uh, one, um, and you've yeah. talked to me a lot about how kids have per- changed your perspective um, on golf coaching and golf in general. Um, can you explain the change in perspective and how it's helped, uh, the program? Yeah. Um, I'm one that is quite stubborn. Um, one that is, I don't say pretty set in my ways, but I'm pretty, um, opinionated and feel that I know what's going to be best in a lot of situations. Um, so my first two, three, even four years into, you know, once Kinsley was born, it was a lot of, I don't say my way or the highway. So I don't like to put it that way, but it was, this is going to be done this way and this way only, and you better adapt to how we're going to do things. Um, and as you start to raise children yourself and realize, and you have multiple children and how, how much better you need to be at analyzing each situation and realizing that, um, you need to look at things from as many angles as you possibly can. And at 24, 25, 26 years old, um, I don't think I did that as well as I, I do at 35, 36 or 37 years old. Um, so when you make a decision, it's kind of looking at who's the impact or who's the decision impacting, um, and kind of how are, how are you? the choices I make in, in relaying the message going to affect, going to affect them. I'm realizing that not everybody learns the same way, receives messages the same way. Um, you know, all of our players were raised by their parents for the first 17, 18 years of their life. And we get them and at 18 years old or 19 year old, 19 years old at the time. And it, it took me a while to realize that they don't see this, see a lot of the same things the way that I do. Um, and I'm very, I'm very stringent. Some things we're going to do some things a certain way, but there's other ways that I've kind of, I don't say softened my stance, but I've been able to look at things from multiple perspectives and try to realize that, um, you know, at this point in our program, we've got 15, 16 individuals plus a couple of coaches. We all see things differently. So let's have some discussions at times. Um, but the one thing I've been very adamant on, you know, from the day, day I started was, you know, 
office doors never closed, cell phones never off. Um, never be afraid to ask questions. I'm um, going to give you answers, let you know why we're doing things. And I think the way I've answered questions has probably changed. Um, and I've caught myself at times, um, you know, not being as, as hard as um, as I wanted to be early on, but also, you know, listening to them, why they think we should do things differently. And you know, at the end of the day, this is our players program. We've got to try to do things that's going to make us all better. And yeah, I've got a bit more experience in some of these things than our players do, but they've got different experiences that I don't. So it's listening to them um, and trying to find ways to that we can make ourselves better. And um, again, I think that goes on to family as well. You know, as a parent of an eight-year-old now, I think she's eight going on 18. Um, you know, my daughter's got different ways of doing things that, you know, I think we've had to, my wife and I've had to catch ourselves at times and listen to her a little bit more of why she wants to do something a certain way. And, you know, the older she gets, the more, um, you know, life experience she's getting at school and we're not there. And she's, she brought us some perspective at times. And so I think that's what it comes down to is just listening, um, to each other. And as a, as a program, we're together so often, um, we need to be able to listen to our players. I mean, at this point, when, when you're in, in the program for 13 or 14 years, there's not a player that's in our program that, you know, we didn't have a say in bringing in. So there's really no excuses if we, um, if we can't listen to them. Yeah. And you, uh, I love what you said. Not everyone learns the same. Um, and I know you're a big team practice kind of guy, but um, you also do a lot of individual stuff as well. Um, I think you're really good at balancing that. Can you explain kind of how you decide when you need to do team practice and when you need to do um, individual practice? Yeah, and a lot of it comes down to um, time management. A lot of it comes down to players' schedules, uh, course availability. Um, and then, you know, being in Cleveland, obviously, it comes down to weather as well. It's really hard to run a team practice in the middle of winter. Um, so for us, we do a lot of our team meetings together, but then a lot of our breakout sessions or individual, you know, practice sessions are going to be individual just because of space. Once we're outside in season, um, it, it's a constant evaluation. Um, what are we doing well? What are we not doing well? How can we get better? Who needs essentially who needs what? Um, and there's some practices, a lot of short game stuff you can do in large groups, um, some more range sessions. If a player needs to work on something specific or needs a set of, you know, my set of eyes just to relay what I'm seeing, then I need to be a little more specific to that player. Um, so a lot of it just comes down to evaluating and not having a set practice schedule, which gets hard at times. Yeah. Um, but it's again, that's where you get back to communication, um, communicating with the players of, hey, we're going to be practicing this day and this day this week. Here are the options. Let's wait and see kind of things how to develop and just constant team text messages of, hey, this is what we're going to do. This is why. A quick breakout after practice is over, let them know what I saw, and then probably a text message that night after I've had time to kind of process it, and what makes us better tomorrow. Um, what do we have coming up that weekend? I tell recruits and their families, you know, every recruiting visit, you know, I'm not a coach that hands you a practice schedule on August 25th and says, hey, this is what we're doing for the next eight weeks, or this is when we're practicing or where we're practicing. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but more so it just gives you know me the flexibility to kind of set up practices the way that I think are going to make us make us better for that weekend, um, which if we're better for that weekend, we're going to be better at the end of the year, which obviously is the goal for us. Yeah. Um, and I just wanted to point out uh, for coaches, you said you sent you send text messages after you've had time to kind of digest what you saw. Um, and I think that's one thing that you're really good at and something that um, I've learned a lot from you is 
that if you are angry after a round or something, um, you don't go out and say things right away. You kind of let things digest, and I think it's a really good way of handling things. Um, have you? I mean, we've all been yelled at by you uh, probably once or twice, but ha- how did you uh, kind of develop that? And even after good rounds, it wasn't like, oh, great plan, this is awesome. You know, it's it, you take your time to digest uh, things, and then um, once you've fully thought about it, then you. Um, kind of communicate what you saw with us, which I think is very helpful. Um, how did you kind of learn about that? Or has that just kind of been your philosophy from the time it's happened? Um, you always talk about that. Um, if you had to uh, have an interview five minutes after a game, like some of these basketball coaches and football coaches, it w- probably wouldn't end well. So um, kind of go dive deeper into that for me. If I had to give interviews after rounds of golf, like I said, I wouldn't have been 14 years in the business. There's no way. <laughs> Um, I think I absolutely would have needed some schooling from our sports info team if that was going to happen. But yeah. no, I think a lot of it comes down to how I was raised. Uh, my dad was my coach in uh, most of my baseball seasons that I played and played, you know, pretty high competitive levels. And it just always turned into, Hey, you know, baseball, you're playing an hour and a half, two hour game at, you know, the age of 13, 14 years old. And now I'm going to, you know, my dad wasn't going to call us together and, and break down two hours in a matter of 30 seconds after the game. And kind of just, I don't know if it stuck with me or if it was even purposeful. Um, but you know, 36 whole day of college golf, we're out there for 12 hours by the time you get there, warm up, play, and you're done. And to be able to sum up what I saw in different ways in a matter of 10 minutes just doesn't make much sense. Um, plus, frankly, I want to see how our players are responding to how we played. Whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, um, come in, we grab dinner. Um, usually I try to change conversation quite quickly um, and not so much rehash every single shot that's on the golf course. Um, and try to get away from it for a minute. The same token, if I see players that aren't taking it seriously, that we didn't play well, or they're getting cocky if we played well, um, you know, that's time where I might say something just to kind of again change the subject or get us off of that. And then once we get back to the hotel or wherever we're going to be that night and break down what we saw, I think I give myself an hour and a half, two hours to try to break down and you know, critically think about, you know, did we attack the golf course the right way? Did I see players sticking to game plans? Um, and then I think, again, you talked about what have I done differently? I think now it's turned it over to the players earlier in meetings to find out what they saw, what they thought, um, were our, were our bad scores just from lack of execution, which again, I think as coaches, we can all live with, um, or were they from, you know, not being focused, not sticking to a game plan and then kind of really direct the rest of the meeting that direction. If it's execution, try to figure out why, where can we get better? Do we need to change a game plan based on execution? Um, and then again, always in the back of my mind, trying to keep a big picture. Um, you know, for us being a mid-major, uh, you know, in men's college golf, magic number at the end of the year usually comes down into top 62 or 63 teams getting at large berth. We haven't exactly been in that range. So for us, it's how do we get ready for our conference championship? Um, so it's always, regardless if it's August, September, February, March, my mind is on the end of April, you know, pretty much at every event of how do we get ready? So it's how can we take today's lessons and make us better tomorrow? Um, we've usually had a reoccurring theme of always trying to win the last day. Um, you know, if we're playing a 54 hole event over two days, it's always try to be the lowest score on that 18 hole day. Um, because if we've got a lead going in the last day and we win the last day, we're going to be victorious. So it's always trying to prepare the guys that if we've got a lead going into that last day of our conference championship and we win that last day, nobody's going to catch us and beat us. Um, if we can keep their minds singularly focused on one round rather than an entire tournament, 
um, when it comes time, hopefully they're prepared mentally to, to attack that, you know, at our conference championship. So it's, it's, I guess, a multifaceted answer, but it always comes down to, you know, how do we attack that day, but also how do we keep it big picture? And um, I think I've, what I've done a lot better of as a coach the last three, four five years is, is realizing one bad round or one bad day is not going to um, set us back or dictate kind of who we are as a team. It's how do we respond or react from that? And same yeah. token, if we play really, really well, how how do we respond the next day? Um, and it's kind of funny. Our best rounds as a team over the years has come usually in the final round of tournaments. Um, I think two or three of the times we've set and then broken our own school records come in the final rounds. Um, after not playing so great the first day, so we've responded quite well. And then it goes down to how do we prepare better for that final, you know, for that first round, like we did the the final round going forward. And yeah. um, so it's again, it's constant evaluation. There's not one right way to do it. There's not one constant way to do it. It's how do we take that group of players and make us better for that day? Yeah. And you talked about uh, the conference championship being the most important, uh, most important tournament of the year. And um, you we're probably at Cleveland state, never going to get to 60th in the country unless um, we're able to somehow get our better schedule. And, um, you've kind of always said that, but um, with a smaller budget, how do you go about scheduling um, tournaments to get us ready for the conference championship? For me, it comes down to two parts. I like to find golf courses that are going to prepare us and then fields that are going to prepare us. Golf courses, our, our conference championships held at El Campeon at Mission Inn down in uh, just north of Orlando. It's a very hard golf course, golf course that you've got to be smart and disciplined. Um, we've learned over the years kind of how to play it the way that best suits us. And so as I go through golf courses um, of where we're going to play, I found some that I think prepares pretty well that are intimidating off the tee. So by the time we get to our conference championship, there usually isn't a tee shot that we haven't seen um, somewhere along the way. And then um, I'd like to prepare so that if we're going to make it to a regional and our you know, goal is to make it out of a regional into a national championship, playing with teams that we're going to see at a regional so um, you know the kids aren't going to be intimidated by a field. Our first year back in 2008, we won our conference championship, got to regionals. And our kids were so starstruck by playing with some of these big power five schools that um, they had trouble warming up on the range. And I'll never forget standing on the range that day at Ohio State uh, down at Scarlet and thinking to myself, we've got to schedule some of these teams early on. Um, and fortunate enough, you know, on the men's side, college golf's gone to a 500 rule. And um, so some of these teams have you know, started inviting more of the mid-majors to these you know, more elite fields that we generally didn't get to see early on so now we're playing with you know power five schools you know if not weekly every other week to where we got to regional and just it didn't affect us um something pretty early on i wasn't going to schedule tournaments that you know quote unquote gave us confidence by entering fields that I th we were supposed to win and things like that we're just going to enter the fields that we're going to enter and you know try to play as well as we can and there's some fields we enter where a top five finish is going to be pretty good out of 15 teams there's other fields we end up being in that if we don't finish top two or three, we probably don't play very well. But again, that comes down to breaking down that week, that golf course, um, and kind of going from there. But I, I don't know. I, I don't look at budget being a constraint to be on the field, uh, a schedule that is going to make us ready for the end of the year. If you start doing that, you start making excuses. And as soon as coaches make excuses, players are going to buy into that pretty quick. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, with your budget, you've done a great job of, um, you've pretty much revamped the entire program in your 13 years that you've uh, been at Cleveland state. You've gotten uh, us memberships at Canterbury, uh, uh, Barrington and Lakewood, which are three of the top courses in uh, Cleveland. And then um, you were also able to fundraise for a indoor facility. Um, what's your key with fundraising and um, kind of building relationships? Um, what, 
how do you go about doing that and how have you gone about revamping the program in that way? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I say revamp. We kind of carried things on that I think we were doing when I played here. Um, then it says building relationships, uh, being a member of the Northern Ohio PGA. It's getting to know, um, you know, early on was getting to know the guys that were running some of these facilities and, you know, getting them to realize kind of who Cleveland State was and, uh, frankly, explaining to some of them the weird Division One golf program. Um, some people didn't realize that and just kind of making myself a little more um, visible, you know, some of the tournaments I play in, you know, carrying our golf bag and things like that and getting them to realize kind of who we were. And then, um, you know, not being afraid to ask and realizing if you ask the right way, even if they say no, there's usually no hard feelings. Um, you know, Canterbury came along because Canterbury wanted us to try to host a national championship. Um, so they actually approached us and it was a great relationship for four years. Uh, they were going to go through some course renovations. So we ended up leaving and, um, you know, within a week, uh, Barrington, you know, very graciously offered us to, you know, be able to play their facility. Um, we were there for four or five years and Barrington was, you know, good to us. Membership loved having us there. It just turned into being a little bit too far of a drive daily for our players. Um, so we had to kind of consider how much time we were spending commuting to and from the golf course and, um, kind of led us into Lakewood, which is about 15 minutes from campus, tremendous facilities, hosted web.com events within the last four or five years. Um, the golf shop staff's been tremendous to us. The membership has been great to us. So it's just comes down to, um, talk about relationships and we talk to our guys, you know, members come up and talk to us. How do we, how do we respond? How do we start conversations, keep conversations going so they don't mind having us there? Um, and obviously, as, as all golf coaches in the North know, typically the times we play in the spring, not many people are at the golf course. So um, really haven't had many problems there. And then as far as fundraising goes, it just comes down to um, us. We've had been very fortunate. We've had a lot of um, very generous parents and family members of our players. And then some relationships that you know we've built throughout the years. You know, People have called us and offered to... Uh, give back in certain ways and how can they help how uh, we started um, you know a couple fundraisers throughout the years that have just seemed to be going on and I think that we've done we've done a pretty good job at um, you know thanking people when we can and um, letting them know what the money's going towards and that we're not just you know spending it on things that we don't need but um, as far as our indoor facility goes um, you know back in the day you know my golf coach Tom Porton uh, started the room with one old racquetball court turned into one mat and one net um, just so the guys had somewhere to go you know, swing. And he started a women's program um, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, and needed some more space, um, turned into uh, you know, three or four mats and a big net. And then my, I guess it was my senior year, we built our own putting green out of plywood and carpet. And um, it was, you know, for us at the time back in 2004 or five, it was great. It was, you know, we didn't had nothing like that. And then once I took over, it's, you know, how do we keep making this better? Um, I always set out each year to try to do one thing that's going to make that room better. Um, we're now, it's two racquetball courts that are, you know, connected that how can we, how can we better, better this for our players, which in turn, they're going to, you know, better us on the golf course. Um, it's never been aesthetically pleasing. It's always, how can we functionally make it better? And now that we've uh, made our latest addition, which was a, a simulator to go with our track man that we've had, um, now that we've kind of got all the functionality to it, we're going to start aesthetically improving it and putting some banners up on the walls and um, some you know, recognition to our players of the past and things like that to where I think now we're in a position we can um, start adding some more of the looks to the room and give it a little more, you know, more pop to the visual side of things. Yeah, absolutely. And I expect to see my face on the wall sometime. We'll work on that. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. I have no chance of doing that at all. So <laughs> we'll, see. Um, we'll see. But uh, it is uh, it is 
the uh, track man, the new simulator is pretty incredible and um, a big uh, help for the program. And um, I actually won nine holes on it, so I can't wait to use that. Yes, and, you uh, did. See it down there. <laughs> once we uh, once we get back, we can actually get back into the room. We've been locked off campus since March. 20th or something like that to where i can't even get back in our room but once we do i've already i've, I've got your i've got your nine hole set up and we'll have a little competition once you're back into town nice nice um so taking a complete change of direction here um being uh the head men's and women's coach um is extremely strenuous um you were traveling all the time um can you explain how you were able to devote so much time to uh both teams and the challenges you faced yeah, yeah, it was, um, it did get quite time consuming, um, up until a point about two years ago, I actually think you were our first head women's coach mm-hmm. to where, um, over the years I, I was looking at it and it was really hard to commit to, um, both teams. Um, you were always traveling with one team and, you know, trying to prepare another that was on the other side of the country at times or other side of the state. And you've got, um, you know, we had some really, really good assistant coaches over the years um, and trying to text message back and forth. Cause you would, as a head coach, I would tend to travel with one team one weekend and one with the, uh, the next weekend and kind of switch back and forth. What that meant was whoever I traveled with that weekend and what I saw and what we needed to work on, I'd flip around and go to practice with the other team so I could prepare them for a tournament. And it just, there was never that consistency of kind of having, um, the same set of eyes on each team. Um, it turned into a couple times where chemistry worked really well, where our assistant ended up with, with the women for a majority of the spring season heading into our conference championship. Um, and then it turned into, in title, I was head men's and women's, and our assistant coach was the assistant coach of the men and women. But essentially, our assistant coach became the head coach of the women's team, where they had the same voice, the same set of eyes, every practice, every tournament. And it worked really, really well. And at that time, administration and I started talking about how can we kind of take this a step further and make it formalized. Um, so it's it worked pretty well where I could, um, you know, we're able to, to bring you in and kind of start, you know, a new tradition of having a head women's coach. And I transitioned into more of a director of golf plus head men's coach. I oversaw both programs, helped with budgets and things like that. But um, it really gave, you know, you and, you know, at this time we have Taylor Riggs and our, as our ladies coach, the freedom to, to run a team. Um, they're on a team the way that you see fit. And I think it's worked. I think it's worked pretty well um, as we went through, you know, again, as we talked earlier in the podcast, I was, you know, we were newly married when I started and I could be away from home a little bit more. And I'm sure Alicia didn't mind at times. Um, but once, you know, I had started having our own children, it got hard. It got to the point to where you know, I was on the road every single weekend for seven, eight, nine weekends in a row at times, because as a coach, I tried to alternate when each team was traveling. And so I, I wasn't missing as much as I could and just kept taking me away from home more and more and more. And um, as the kids got older and realized that I wasn't home and why I wasn't home, um, they're always good about it. But there's, you know, as a, as a coach with, you know, with children of their own at home, it got harder and harder each weekend to leave. And so now with 11 or 12 tournaments over the course of the fall and the spring with just the men versus having 18 or 19 between both teams, it um, has made it less, um, I guess, less difficult. Um, to only have, you know, kind of one team I travel with week in and week out. And I think our women's team has gotten better for it. Um, our men's team has gotten better for it. And I think we're on our way to hopefully keeping things going. Yeah, absolutely. And in 2017, I should, I'm sorry, I should have said he is the director of golf now for both programs. Um, he started as a head women's program or coach and men's and women's coach. So um, he, Coach Weir said that he was the director of golf. I should have said that early in the podcast. Um, but yeah, he took over as the director of men's and women's golf and the head men's coach um, in 2018, I believe. 
um, and was dumb enough to hire me for some reason. But <laughs> um, it, but in 2017, your parents made a wealthy contribution to the program. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Um, in 2017, uh, it all com- uh, um, it all came together, um, and we were able to win um, a conference title uh, as men's and women's program for the first time in school history. Um, the cool thing about our conference championship is that it's played on the same golf. Well. It's at Mission Inn, which is um, El Campeon and Las. What is it? Uh, Las Camp- Colinas. Las Colinas, um, and it's played in the same uh, the same golf course, um, but different sides of the course. So um, pretty awesome to experience. Um, can you explain what it meant to you to have both programs win on the same day, um, and kind of the reaction of the uh, the program when it happened? Um, I still have I have chills right now thinking about it actually. So. Um, yeah, I started thinking about it, gave them the same chills. Yeah. Uh, when I started in 2007, um, our women's team was uh, was not very strong, and I said, you know, in my interview process that, you know, if I'm going to take over both teams, the women's team is going to get better. Um, nothing I'm going to have my name associated to is not going to try to be competitive. So we got close a couple times over the years. Had some great players, great kids, um, who I still talk to quite regularly, and we just never kind of got over the hump. Um, 2017, things started coming together. Um, throughout the spring season, saw some good things on both sides. The men were, were quite strong, um, went in as the prohibitive favorite to, to win a conference championship. And we went down and through the first couple of days kind of took care of our business and we're playing pretty well going into the final round. Uh, the ladies played uh, really, really well in the second round and put themselves in position to, to win a golf tournament. And as you said, you know, mission in the first tee at Kalinas and Campione are about 50 yards apart. You can stand on each team, look over and see them, but they go in opposite directions and then they never get closer than that. The rest of the, uh, the West, the rest of the way through. So our teams are teeing off the exact same time. Um, I'm standing on with the men watching our ladies tee off down the first fairway. I can see the ladies finish the first hole as I'm watching our guys. And, um, I told our guys the night before, if you see me checking my phone for golf set, I can promise you I'm not checking our side. I'm checking the ladies side. As we went through, um, the men said, took care of business, um, did what they're supposed to do, ended up winning, which is great. It was, I think, at that time, our fourth straight. And um, right away, I jumped in the golf cart. You know, we celebrated on the men's side, headed over to the ladies' side, and I knew at that time we were, were quite close. Um, golf stat had, were updating every three holes, and you never know how accurate they are, but we were within a few of, of Young Sound State at the time, and uh, it's about a four-minute cart ride over to 18 green um, from 118 green to the other pulled up with about three minutes to spare watch one of our players I believe it was Raina Oosterhaus at the time rolled in about a five-footer at that time we thought it was important but didn't know um, watch players go over sign all their scorecards and we were still trying to do the math in our heads of kind of who you know who did what you know what'd you make on the last couple holes what did your players from the other schools do and at that time Nate Miklos who was actually my first assistant at Clinton State, he was with me the first four or five years, was now the head coach at Youngstown State, walked over, took his hat off, and shook uh, John Powers in my hands, who JP at the time was our assistant coach and was with the women, and, and said, you know, congrats, you guys won. And at that time, we, it was the next five minutes were pretty chaotic. I don't remember much of it. A lot of hugging, crying, yelling, screaming, um, high fives, things like that with players and parents. Um, and then the ladies, you know, hey, how'd the guys do? And I said, no, we won as well, but we had a player going into a playoff for medalist honors on the guy's side. So I drove back over so we could get set up for that. And, you know, at that time the ladies started heading over and turned into a dead sprint. Our guys were still kind of celebrating on their golf course. And 
uh, both teams saw each other about a 50 or 60 yard gap between the two of them and and took off towards each other and it was a large embrace of i think we probably had 12 or 13 players between um some guys that were down there just to watch and the players and there was a huge embrace i think we trampled three or four flower beds uh destroyed <laughs> some shrubbery that michigan had nicely planted and it was, as a coach i stood there and just watched um teams celebrate all the hard work they put in and then as a coach it was that point what nine or ten years of hard work um things you wanted to see of you know your team winning on the same weekend and um then we both teams stood there and watched anton and Cressa going to playoff and and win medals honors and it was uh it was pretty cool it's pretty cool experience and something that you know as a coach you're never going to forget and i think the players are never going to forget as well yeah, and I'm gonna. I think there's a video that I'll uh, try to find and post on our Instagram and my Instagram uh, for Coach's Connection. It's a pretty amazing video, and I think everybody that watches will probably get chills. It's uh, pretty awesome, and Coach goes into uh, family atmosphere, and I think that shows the uh, family that was that he's built there um, at Cleveland State, and um, all of us still. Uh, connect regularly um on the both the men's and women's side um and together so um it was uh it was quite the quite the culmination of what he's built and it was uh pretty awesome and i think him and i both had chills the entire time he was talking uh talking about that so um thanks for going into that and i can't wait for everybody to see that video um so we've got about 40 minutes you got a few more minutes for me uh before you get back to the kids uh for, yeah uh, i think we're good questions. All right. Yeah, sounds we're, good. We're, we're good. They're pretty occupied. All right. All right. Um, this is a shout out to one of my old teammates, Pat Luth. Uh, this was a question that came from him. Um, you aren't uh, Cleveland State's not the school that's going to get the uh, top recruits in the country. Um, and you know that. Um, how do you go about um, first when you're looking at recruits? What do you know is going to fit your program? And then um, by the time most of your recruits leave, um, they've developed into players that can play on pretty much, um, I would say, pretty close to most programs in the country. How do you go about developing those players as well? Well, again, talk about what we've done differently over 13 or 14 years. Early on, it was just how do we find players that are shooting really good scores as as junior golfers. Um, And I didn't know much about recruiting. I did very, very little training. Um, when I started, I was an assistant coach for about four months before I took over. And at that time, there was no recruiting involved for me. Um, so I, I had learned the recruiting bug or recruiting game pretty much on my own, asking a ton of questions and trying to figure out what I wanted to look for. So early on, it was who shot the best scores. Um, and as I've developed over the years, it's who's going to fit in best with what we do. And what we do is we work really hard and try to get a lot better. Um, and I think it's finding players that aren't afraid to get down and, and put in a lot of work um, on their own in between practices, in between in between tournaments, kind of putting in late hours um, in our indoor facility, which is right on campus. So it's a good resource for our players to be able to go down and do. But it comes down to you know finding players that um, want to get better and aren't afraid to ask questions of how they can get better. And if you look at our you look at our kind of our record books of who's played really well over the last 13 or 14 years, the first thing you can generally say about all of them is they outworked all their teammates and outworked all their competition. Um, and usually teammates can drive each other. Um, I think what we've been, if you've looked over the years at our teams that have been really successful versus the ones that maybe have struggled are the ones that um, I don't have to do as much pushing to practice. Um, I may also have to put the reins on them to back them off a day or two at a time. Um, and then it comes down to inter-team competition, um, and not necessarily just qualifying, 
um, because most mid-majors, we're not going to have a roster much bigger than seven or eight at a lot of times. A lot of times, your first three or four players are pretty set in stone. Um, they need to keep playing well, um, but you're generally going to have a lot of the same lineups week in and week out. Um, if we can have some push for some different spots and keep guys sharp, that's great. But it's how do we, in practice, um, indoors, outdoors, get them to compete, um, whether it's putting game, short game, um, you know, if we are out playing and we're not qualifying, putting them into a best ball match in practice. So they're, they're playing, they're getting better, but they're also trying to beat their teammates. Um, I often tell, you know, a lot of recruits, it's not the wins and losses at tournaments. It's, you know, beating your, beating your roommate, you know, in a match coming down the stretches for bragging rights. Um, and it's things like that, that I think make us better once we have to compete. Um, you talk about players developing, you know, the players that have developed over the years aren't afraid to make changes when they need to. They've got really good instructors at home, you know, kind of paired with, you know, what I see. And then it's just a lot of communication and this is what you can do. Let's try to do this differently next time. Um, and breaking down tournaments once you get back to campus of, Hey, this is what, well, this is what went well and why. I think a lot of coaches always focus on the negative of, hey, this is what we didn't do well. But when you do do things well and you do play well, how do you break down um, what you did well and why? So we can try to keep doing more of that and less of what happens when it doesn't go well. Yeah. Um, but and to get back to your question, recruiting, it comes down to finding players that are self-driven. Um, our sport, you spend a lot of time on your own. You know, As a coach, you don't see your players very often during tournaments unless you're walking with one of them. Then you're not going to see the other four either. But yeah. you got to find players that are pretty self, self-motivated, self self-driven, um, have goals for themselves, and are going to want to outwork everybody and get as much as they can out of their four, four and a half, five years, whatever they are on campus with us. Yeah. Yeah, and you're really good at finding those self-driven players. And um, most of the players you brought in haven't had offers from uh, – any other D1 schools and uh, you've won 10 Horizon League championships in 13 years. Um, so pretty impressive stuff. Um, you are a lifer at CSU. Um, Cleveland State is, by the way, I haven't messed up and said Colorado State instead of Cleveland State, which is impressive because it took me about three months to break the Cleveland State when I came to Colorado State. So, um, But you are a lifer at uh, Cleveland State. Um Cleveland is home to you and what kind of makes it home to you? Um, and why is Cleveland state so important to you? Um, I think we said it's home. Uh, I was born and raised in Brunswick, which is 20 minutes South of Cleveland. Um, Alicia was born and raised in the city next to me. We met as kind of the whole high school sweetheart things. Actually this past February was 20 years we've been together and it, you know, it's 36, 37 years old. It's, um, not something you see a whole lot these days. Um, but our families are all from here. Um, obviously we've had children, we've raised them here, actually moved back into Brunswick five years ago, built a house here, which I says right up the road from my parents where I grew up. So my parents watch the kids while we're both, I'm traveling, my Alicia's working. Um, and then if you transition into campus, Cleveland state has been a family, you know, the entire time. I think it's kind of where, um, I talked about, you know, my administrators telling me I had to go on my honeymoon, um, you know, in the middle of our first fall season. And it's a, a an athletic department our size, you have to act as a family and help each other out. And you're constantly worried about what other teams are doing so you can see what you can do to help them out. Um, and it, I, I don't know anything else. I can't say it's better than a big school feel or I don't look at us as a big school or as a, a small school. I just look at us as who we are. Uh, we've had some tr- transition over the years and we're in a position right now as a school that I think we're um, – you know, heading back to where we want to as a department. We've got a really good leadership team um, that's doing a lot of really, really good things for our student athletes and our coaches are embracing it and helping out when and where we can. Um, but also the coaches, it's um, how can we help each other? We had our first Zoom head coaches call, you know, a week after all this hit and we hadn't seen each other in two or three weeks in the first 
I don't know, five or six minutes where us just, you know, catching up and met amongst, you know, 17 or 18 coaches trying to all talk on the same Zoom call wasn't going so well. But it was also pretty funny to see a group of a group of coaches, you know, miss each other as much as we've have. And um, you know, I think it's over the years, our administrators have done a really, really good job of letting our coaches coach. Um, we're not micromanaged. Um, we're helped out when we are needed. We're held to a high standard. Um, and I think we all hold our, our players to that standard. Um, and then you can speak into as a student athlete. Um, you know, went through Cleveland State. Our players, our student athletes are a fraternity slash sorority. They, you know, they hang out together. They love each other. They watch each other compete. They push each other. Um, you know, so my guys are all really good friends with, you know, the tennis team and, you know, some of the wrestlers and things like that. And so it just makes it um, a lot easier to go to work every day for me. It makes it a lot easier for our players to go to practice every day when they're, you know, getting texts from players of other sports. And, you know, the first thing we do, we walk off a golf course. I'll have somebody ask me, hey, how'd the tennis team do today? And it's little things like that that, um, again, families kind of seems to be the key word of this, of this podcast, but that's that's what it has been. It's been a family. And um, over the 13 and a half, 14 years, I can honestly say I felt like I was going to work probably no more than, you know, 10 days. Well, the rest of it just feels like this is what I'm going to do and go down, do what we have to do and, you know, see people you want to see. Um, you don't see coaches going there in their offices, shut their doors and not want to talk to anybody. Um you know, there's all those days where you've got to get stuff done, so you may shut your door for a minute so you're not distracted. But other than that, it's um, it's a really, really good group of people that um, we've grown with. We've got a, a core group of people. There's probably four or five of us that have been there my entire 13 or 14 years, and we're all quite close. And we've seen some new faces come in and out, but everybody seems to have the same same kind of goals and you know kind of values that we have, and it's been it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, and it is a. Uh... It is a family atmosphere at Cleveland State, and uh, Cleveland's an awesome city, too. Um, Jane and I are getting married there because it uh, feels like home, and that's where we met. And um, so, yeah, Cleveland Cleveland is incredible, and um, I know it means a lot to you, and growing up there means even more to you. So um, you've built quite the program at Cleveland State, um, e- extremely impressive. Um, can you – but I know that I, I don't think that you're going to say your biggest accomplishment is 10 conference championships. Um, what do you think your biggest accomplishment is as a coach? Well, I think there's two. I think you can go on course and off course. Um, and I'll start with the one we already talked about. On the golf course is winning two championships at the same time. Um, it isn't the you know the eight or whatever we won on the guy side or the one that I won as a player. Um, it's probably a more elusive the first one I was on the lady side. And even though I wasn't as directly involved you know, with the team that year, um, it was just a culmination of a lot of hard work. And then if you can find that video, um, I'll still won't forget it. I was standing off edge of the green and watched um, both teams. Like we talked about embrace behind the first, the first hole at El Campione and, and watch them be as elated as they could be with each other. Um, but more importantly, off the golf course, it's the relationships. Um, you know, it's the two say the dates for the weddings I've been invited to by former players that are sitting on my refrigerator downstairs. Um, it's the four or five weddings we've been to in the past. It's the baby announcements we get from players that, you know, graduated, moved on and become adults. Um, it's the, I don't know, 12 or 15 text messages I got after they canceled the spring season from former players saying, Hey, how are your players holding up? Um, how, you know, how, how are the kids doing? Things like that. That's, um, the relationships are going to go a long way. It's not remembering the tournament we won in, you know, the spring of 2014. It's the players that were on that team and the stories from that team. And as we tell the recruits, you're not going to remember the wins and losses. You're going to remember the van rides and things like that. And that's 
that's what it comes down to. It comes down to who goes through your program, who we watch is 17, you know, 16, 17 year olds as we're out recruiting and then who they turn into when they're 21, 22 years old, or in some cases, 24 years old when they graduate. Um, you know, we've got a few players go, you know, the five or six year plan, but other than that, it's, yeah, it's, it's to save the dates on the refrigerators. We're looking forward to weddings coming up in the fall. And um, that's, that's what's meant the most. And I think that's what keeps this not a job and not a career. It's just kind of what I do and kind of who I am on, on the professional side of things. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and then the final question I have for you, um, I know we've talked quite a bit, but I've uh, started this podcast to uh, try to highlight women's golf coaches and um, coaches who coach women's golf. Um, but I've also want to know uh, kind of what separates the best coach from the rest. Um, in your opinion, what separates the best coaches from coaches that aren't as successful? Um, that's things that I've learned over the years from the coaches that I, I consider the best that we've had go through Cleveland State and you know, at other sports and kind of coaches that I've latched on to, um, as I've looked at as mentors, it's, it's the relationships. It's constantly learning. Um, it tends to be the best coaches, um, are always asking questions, always willing to take feedback on things they've done well, things that they could get better at, um, not to take the wins or losses too personally, either way. Um, it's really easy to feel real high on yourself, real down on yourself, but it's, um, at the end of the day, we're still trying to develop, you know, 18 to 22 year olds. And I think the best coaches are, that's their number one goal every single year of how do I make this roster better? You know, for us, it's how do we, how are we better April 28th than we are August 28th? Um, and our players always look at that as winning conference championships. But for me, it comes down to more than that. It's how are we better in the classroom? How are we better as teammates? How are we taking care of each other better? And then, you know, very few of you are going to play professional golf. How are you better? How are you more equipped for your career? What are the life lessons you're picking up? And I'll be selfish. I think our sports more more beneficial than most other sports, preparing our kids to enter the real world. And I constantly harp on our players about that ways you can use this in business and use this in life. And, um, you know, we go into buildings and it's, you know, for our guys, it's always taking their hats off regardless of where we are. I mean, you were a part of that for years, and I don't care if we're at Wendy's or a steakhouse. You know, our players are not going to wear hats inside. Um, it's something that I think our players have always done a really good job at of just worrying about um, not their image, but kind of how they're perceived. And I think it's something that, it, you know, as coaches, if you can strive and, you know, pound that into their heads from day one on campus until the day they, you know, put that cap and gown on or go to grad school, whatever it's going to be. I think that's the most important part is making sure you never lose sight that we're here to develop kids and players and turn them into adults. And, but also make sure that once they leave, that you're always accessible to them. Make sure if they have questions when they reach out, that you're do everything you can for them four years after they graduated, just as you would when you were recruiting them, that they're just as important to you. And they should be, you know, 10 years after they graduate versus 10 days before they get on campus. I think you can do that. Players are going to kind of see that that's, that's real. And hopefully, um, that helps build a successful program. Yeah, and that was great. Thank you. And we could talk all day. Um, you've been my my longest podcast so far, and it doesn't surprise me because uh, we could we could talk all day. But um, I just want to thank you for coming on, and everyone that's listened, um, coaches. Uh, other than my my dad and my grandpa, the uh, most influential man that's been in my life. So um, I appreciate everything you've done for me, and I appreciate you jumping on, and um, can't wait for people to hear from you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Hopefully, you know, next podcast you can get back to coaches that are, you know, top 25 or top 30 in the country and not so much mid-majors as we have been. But I appreciate it. You've done done a heck of a job getting this podcast going. And I think any coach that can listen to it is, you know, I know I've picked things up from your first four or five episodes and I think everybody else will be able to. Did you go along? Cool. Thanks, coach. Talk to you soon. All right. Have a good one. All right. All right bye.